Hey everyone, it's Elliot. I'm so glad that you're with us for today's episode. But before we get into it, I wanted to ask you just a small favor, or actually two. First, please subscribe to the new CCO wherever you get your podcasts. That way, you'll always know when we post a new episode. In fact, you'll be the first to know, and that always feels good. Second, share it with your colleagues, or at least leave a review. This is still a pretty new show, and we're finding ways to make it better. As communicators, we know that peer recommendations matter a ton. So please, if you like the show, tell others. And if you don't, tell us why, so that we can make it better. Thanks so much for listening. When you think of the big banking firms, you probably think of Wall Street, right? Stock markets and bulls and bears and all of that. But while Charles Schwab is an investment brokerage, its heritage and identity are much more Main Street than Wall Street. We've never been a Wall Street firm. We don't have an office on Wall Street. We're 3,000 miles away, metaphorically and geographically. That's Joe Carberry, CCO at Charles Schwab. I recently visited Joe at Schwab's offices in San Francisco to talk about how the founding principles of the company and its namesake continue to remain at the heart of who they are and what they do, even 40 years after its founding. I'm Elliot Mizrahi, and this is the new CCO. I'm Charles Schwab. You'll like our low commissions, our convenience, and our quality service. Back in the, in the 70s, Congress deregulated the industry, and what, they deregulated commissions. And it led uh, a lot of firms on Wall Street to raise their commissions. And Chuck went the other way and lowered commissions. And that's sort of the, the start of the firm. And that is where we eventually got discount brokerages from. Now, we would tell you emphatically discount brokerage is a, is a misnomer, um, that this is what you ought to be paying. This isn't a discount. <laughs> um, and we have full service, and this is what you ought to be paying for your full service brokerage firm. So getting into your time with mm-hmm. Schwab, um, one of the Schwab's pillars says, what we do makes a real difference in people's lives, but how we do it makes us a different kind of firm in the investment industry. Talk a little bit about that and how it makes Schwab different. Working here at Schwab um, is different in that we think about what we do. We think about um, how we do it in particular <clears throat> as being different than most of the firms in our space and certainly than what most people would expect out of their relationship. That sounds incredibly cliche to say. Um, but I'll tell you that if you went and asked anybody up and down these hallways, they would, they would agree with it and tell you it's true. And really, it's about um, you know, running our company and sort of operating day to day with the client at the center of the universe. Again, incredibly cliche to say that. But, but it's true. There, there is a, um, a, a very service-oriented approach that we take here. Uh, and we take that very seriously. And part of that is helped along by the fact that the, the guy whose name is on the side of the building and who founded the firm still walks the halls. Um, and I, I think we have a very, um, you know, an amazing founder who um, had this mindset in starting the firm a long, long time ago to put the client at the center of the universe and, and frankly, be willing to do a lot of things that the rest of the industry wasn't. So you've talked about the culture Mm -hmm. um, and also kind of alluded to purpose, you know, why it is that the company does what it does and the value that it creates for for 
customers. Mm. Um, you also said that Charles Schwab walks the halls, and that's got to have an impact also in the way things go around here. Um, can you talk a little bit about how Charles Schwab, as the chairman of the company, has affected that culture and how that sort of manifests itself in the way that business gets done here? Yeah. Uh, it is probably our secret sauce, uh, and, and certainly a huge part of, of the culture that has been created over, you know, four plus decades. Our, our stated purpose, you know, written down uh, in corporate documents is to champion every client's goals with passion and integrity. And um, I've worked at eno enough other places to know that, you know, purpose statements can be, you know, sort of corporate decoration. Um, this is one of those ones that is, is really just a reflection of, of the purpose that has always been part of this place. And I think if you were to ask a lot of people who work here why they work here and why they stay for, you know, years and years and decades in a lot of cases, it's our purpose. Um, and part of that, and, you know, and that, again, comes straight from the firm that Chuck tried to, to establish from the very beginning. And um, being a purpose-led firm and a purpose-driven firm, even till today, is, is really what makes us, I think, unique in a lot of ways. The one constant, I would say, through the years has been a maniacal focus on the client. We like to say through client's eyes. It's what we do, it's in our DNA, and it's what really drives the passion and the culture that we all have here at Schwab. We are champions for our clients and that that is a that is a word that we take very very seriously um we we like to think of ourselves as sticking up for them sticking up for the main street investor the mom and pop who is saving for retirement um we've never been a wall street firm we don't have an office on wall street we're three thousand miles away metaphorically and geographically i didn't know that yeah it's amazing um, and so we've never been part of the Wall Street crowd, and there's, you know, there, there's great benefit to that, uh, and and a differentiation that I think you know fuels people and how they think about what we do and our mission and you know how we're helping people and how we go about what we do, that that really elevates um, what we do in the minds of the people that work here, and and frankly in the minds of our of our clients. And so I think that's a really powerful force that, that we have here as a firm and as communicators that we get to work with internally and externally uh, as, a, as an attractor of talent, as a, you know, a rationale for why we do different things with our strategy, uh, even explaining things to Wall Street. We often will come back to this kind of mission, this purpose-led um, you know, vision uh, of the company really to champion the average investor and, and to, you know, to put them first. And, and, you know, that gets people out of bed in the morning every day. My feeling is that a lot of companies like Schwab would probably say something similar. Um, how do you make that real for the client? Yeah. How do you con convey that through communications? Uh, it's not always easy, um, in, in part because the, the real way you get across something like, uh, you know, a commitment to service or putting clients first is to show them. Um, you know, it's everybody, you're right, everybody does say we put clients first. 
But there are those brands that when you work with them, you know it's true. So a Nordstrom or a Ritz-Carlton, there are different brands out there that, that really do make a commitment to service and a commitment to the experience being different. And we try to show that, um, you know, wherever we can. And not just sort of promise that we're better at this, but, but really show people both the experience that they might get and um, the outcomes with that. Uh, working in the brokerage industry, we actually can't use testimonials. Those are uh, actually forbidden. Um, I was just about to ask for an anecdote, so I feel like that's off. Well, well <laughs> you know, what we try to do is, is kind of work around those constraints. Um, and it is in some ways, a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tougher industry to work in in, in our field than, than some others because of um, regulations, uh, all, you know, well-intended, all, all trying to protect um, the investor. But, you know, we have to work around that. So what we try to do is make, um, you know, make our story as, um, as clear as we can uh, and, and as easy to repeat as possible. The number one driver of business in, in our firm is uh, referrals and word of mouth. We do a lot of work on our team working with the field staff, you know, with our folks out in the branches and our folks in our call centers to make sure that they have, you know, good answers on topics and, and really understand, you know, our story so they can make sure to get that across in all of our interactions. Um, so we don't look at this as, you know, communications isn't, isn't a wholly separate function from our field interactions or, or interactions that you might have on our website, which is actually we think of as our biggest branch. So people is certainly part of the recipe. Um, process is also part of it as well. I understand you're using Agile. Can you talk a little bit about what Agile is and how you found it beneficial? Certainly, certainly. So um, Agile has been around for many years uh, as a, a methodology for um, software development. And here's what it means. It means that, that you are... Um, building your process and, and, and really your mindset around the ability to pivot quickly, the ability to um, respond to change very quickly versus having kind of a rigid annual plan. Um, and that just, I think, reflects the kind of the, in the environment we work in. Comms has always been, a, you know, a, a bit of an agile function based on what we do. We have to respond to media. We have to respond to crises. Um, it's taking that a step further, though, I think, and, and trying to organize the work and the teams and the process to be able to quickly kind of reconstitute against a very specific goal or a very specific audience, get something done very quickly, and learn very quickly. And that's that's one of the other sort of key principles of Agile that we're trying to adopt, which is kind of rapid iteration. As a, you know, an aspiring Agile communications function, you know, we put in place a, a few different things kind of stolen from the, from the world of Agile. We have uh, Monday morning stand-up meetings, which really means everybody in the function gets together for 15 to 30 minutes every Monday morning and goes through the stuff that we have going on that week. It is sort of an open forum where we can ask questions, we share information, everybody sees what's going on in 
closer to real time. Um, and it really helps with the integration because one of the keys of, of Agile, of, of successfully implementing this, is really working in an integrated fashion. One of the things we've done uh, to implement Agile is uh, what we call campaign sprints. So in the world of Agile, a sprint is you know, a highly focused um, body of work. Right? So our campaign sprints really involve us pulling together a cross-functional group of people, a very specific group that is put together to do a specific campaign against a specific business need and a specific audience or audiences in a defined amount of time. And we build the team, build the plan, execute the sort of short-run campaign, see what it teaches us, see what outcomes we get, uh, and then those teams reconstitute for other campaigns. Um, and so it, it sort of fosters integration. It fosters kind of the um, holistic approach to communications where we're, we're using multiple channels and multiple uh, teams to get really great work. Uh, but we're not building our structure that way forever. And so it gives us the, you know, the flexibility to pivot to the next thing a week later or a month later. Is there a story that you can tell about a campaign sprint or a project that you think produced a better outcome because you used Agile, whereas if you had undertaken it in a different way, it may just not have worked out that well? You know, we've run a number of campaigns. We had a, a user-generated content campaign around redefining wealth um, and, you know, asking people, what does wealth mean to you? And it was people would respond with, you know, words and pictures of, you know, modern definitions of wealth. Wealth to me is the idea that I'm not worried about what the future has in store. I feel that wealth is like building a home. Wealth is being able to do what you love. Material objects are not necessarily what I think of as wealth, although, again, I think it's gotten a bit more complicated as I've gotten older. And this is one of, you know, many uh, executions where I, I think this approach has really borne fruit, where Way early in the process, we, we had our employee communications people at the table. We had our social people at the table. We had, you know, our brand storytelling team, you know, that, that do a, a lot of video content. We had all these different parties at the table brainstorming how we might execute that idea, not just figuring out at the end how they would take the idea and push it through their channel. Um, and you end up with a different... Uh, a different creative approach. You end up with a different uh, way of, of solving the same kinds of problems. One, I think it's more effective. I think you're bringing sort of the power of the full function to bear against this you know, specific objective. Two, it's a lot more efficient. You know, if you have those meetings up front, if you're sort of, you know, creating these, these approaches together, you're not tying this stuff together on the back end. You're not retrofitting. You're not you know, having four people uh, or four teams iterate in parallel. Um, and so, again, I think, you know, I think the impact gets better and I think the efficiency gets better. Yeah, it's, so it sounds like, that was really interesting. It, it sounds like Agile is a methodology that's really taken hold because of the pace of change, that we don't have the luxury to devote a ton of resources to something that may or not, may not result in what we expect it to result in, but, you know, you can be more nimble and iterative and learn along the way 
Um, and it's almost as if you're perpetually in beta because you're constantly learning and adapting. I, I think that's a, that's a great way to think of, of the agile mindset, at least how, how we're thinking about it. A lot of the changes that we have made to our function over the last few years really are rooted squarely in the fact that the world around us is changing pretty quickly and pretty dramatically. Um, and, and I think our, our sort of overarching agile approach reflects that. Um, it reflects the fact that few, if any, communications functions like ours have the luxury of planning for six months and, and executing for six months. Um, our world has radically changed in the last six months alone, let alone a year ago. So um, we, we're we going to need to keep getting better and better at, at sort of responding to a changing marketplace responding to competitors that seem to be moving faster and faster to, um, you know, converging media channels and converting, converging audiences um, where just the, the landscape of people that you're reaching through any different channel are changing. Um, so, yeah, this is, this is I, I think, uh, not just an interesting model that we're testing out. I, I think eventually it's going to be a necessity given the environment we operate in, if, if we're going to keep doing the kind of valuable role that we should be doing in communications and playing that role to the business, we've got to be sort of as flexible and as nimble as the outside world requires and as our, as our own employees require. If, if somebody were to hand you a blank check and say, you can spend this on whatever you think your team needs right now, how do you think you'd spend it? I, I think we would continue to build out the capabilities that we've already started, but probably faster. Um, we, I think we've, we've at least started to touch on a lot of the things that we think we're going to need in the future. Uh, if I had a blank check, I'd probably add more of those faster. And I think they would be, um, I wouldn't make this an exhaustive list, but I think I would add um, analytical talent, uh, folks that can really help us understand how we ought to be looking at measuring the work that we do, how we ought to be understanding um, signals from the market, signals from our audiences, and what that should be telling us about adjusting the work that we do faster. Um, you know, and I, I think um, just people who understand creating digital content of all types and using digital channels, um, you know, people are, are spending a lot more time on digital channels. Uh, six hours a day, I saw a recent estimate, and, and more than half of that is on mobile. So um, people who really understand designing for mobile, storytelling on mobile devices, Storytelling in a scroll instead of the traditional, you know, inverted pyramid that we all learned in journalism school. And so, you know, we are trying to modernize our, you know, quote unquote newsroom to deliver our story in those ways. You know, we create news through product announcements, through research that we do, through our expert uh, opinions and lots of other ways. And what we're trying to do is is continue to sort of elevate that practice um, to make sure that um, we're, we're delivering those stories in ways that, that people will want to engage with it. And, and again, 
want to retell that story. That's the grail. That's all for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode of the new CCO, be sure to check out our latest episodes and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a rating and a review. We want to hear what you think so that we can keep making this podcast more interesting and valuable to you. Thanks so much to The Home Depot and to Rivet Smart Audio for their generous support in making this season of the new CCO possible. To find out more about what's happening at PAGE, please visit us at page.org. Thank you.